According to the CDC, 29 deaths a day are caused by impaired driving accidents. To put this in perspective, that is one death in the United States every 50 minutes due to a driver under the influence of an impairing substance. Deaths that could have been avoided. We're going to talk about it today with Melissa Parkinson, a registered nurse and trauma coordinator at Ridgecrest Regional Hospital. This is the Ridgecrest Regional Hospital podcast. My name is Prakash Chandran. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, I know we're talking about impaired driving, but a lot of people, including myself, may not understand the dynamics of what that means. Can you explain what impaired driving is? Sure. So impaired driving, um, what it means is that you are operating a vehicle it could be a boat, a motorcycle, a truck, a car, under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Now, these drugs can be illegal drugs or they can even be prescription medications. It can be anything that really affects your brain in a way that also affects your ability to react to things on the road and to make decisions um, like you would if you were not under the influence. Okay, so it's not just with automobiles. You're saying that it also is any vehicle that you can drive, and that can be a boat. That can really be anything. Is that correct? That is correct. They also have, you could get an FUI if you were flying an airplane um, under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So I, most people think of the roadways, but it also applies to off-road vehicles as well. So it could be a dirt bike also or an all-terrain vehicle. Those are all under the same category for impaired driving. Yeah, and you know, I think people sometimes see the signs, you know, don't drink and drive, um, and they're not necessarily aware of how serious of an issue this is. So can you share some stats around, you know, the number of accidents or deaths that occur due to impaired driving? Sure, and like you had said earlier, it's, it's on average about... 29 to 30 people a day in the United States, which annually it's about 11,000 people a year die um, from alcohol or impaired driving-related accidents. Yeah, that's heartbreaking, you know, because it is something that can be avoided. Um, I wondered, can you share, like, the demographics or age groups uh, of the people who are most affected or most likely to drive impaired? Sure. The number does vary, but in general, the age range um, for most of these is uh, to the age of 21 to 40 years old. They have the highest incidences of motor vehicle crashes due to um, being impaired drivers. And I imagine that the impaired driving incidents spike during the holiday seasons or for particular holidays. Is that something that you see? Yes, um, it definitely increases the CDC um, reports and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration also report that the time between Thanksgiving and New Year's is the deadliest time for roadways, although there is one holiday that's number one for um, impaired driving uh, deaths is the 4th of July, actually. It's the um, most, oh, it's hardly. It's the second most deadly day for driving with New Year's. New Year's Eve is the most deadly day for driving. Wow. And that's because more people are on the roads in that time from Thanksgiving to the New Year's. There are more people traveling. They're going home to visit family. They're attending holiday gatherings such as office parties so forth. 
and then of course New Year's Eve. So with more people on the roadway and more people in that celebratory mode, it just all contributes to more accidents. Yeah. And is there a certain like time of day? Like I imagine when people get out of the bars, like there might be like an elevated spike there. But is there any data around the time of day where it's kind of the most dangerous to be out? I haven't actually looked at data for the time of day, but I do know that typically after bars close at 2.30 a.m., most of the people that are on the road at that time, at least in this state, um, in California, are most people that are under the influence of alcohol. What about texting and driving? And I I realize that texting is not uh, a substance that you are taking in, but certainly it must impair your driving when you're texting at the same time. Does this play a role at all? Well, sure. Um, Texting while driving is a form of impaired driving. It's affecting your driving. Um, It's kind of a separate category, but often when people are under the influence and they are impaired, then they're going to make poor decisions, which includes maybe picking up their phone, maybe texting more, maybe talking on their phone. Most people who are impaired don't make good decisions um, while they're driving. I imagine that most people don't intend to drive impaired. So I wonder if there's any sort of framework that people can either adhere to or a check that they can do on themselves before they get in a vehicle that will prevent them from driving impaired? Well, that's, a, that's kind of a good question. Um, there are basic frameworks for that. Um, the how alcohol, alcohol affects a person's body is very individual. It depends on a lot of factors like their body fat, maybe how much they've eaten in the last few hours, um, how their metabolism in their body works, how fast they metabolize alcohol. So the minimum that a person can have legally in their bloodstream is 0.08 of blood alcohol content. Now, there are devices that people can get, and, and they do have, that they can breathe into it and see what their blood alcohol content is prior to getting into a car. But that's just telling you what the legal limit is. It doesn't really tell you how you're doing. You would have to do a whole sobriety-type test where they have you stand and walk and turn. And there's also graphs that show it's it's estimated depending on your gender and, once again, your weight. And then it takes one to two hours to start clearing it from your system up to six hours, 12 different parts of your body. It's, It's pretty complex. So as far as a framework people need to use is the best framework is planning ahead before you're driving and deciding who's going to either be the designated driver or using ride share or a taxi or some other means of getting yourself safely to and from when you've been drinking. I know in the old days we used to think, well, they just need some coffee to sober them up or a cold shower, which shows no evidence at all to have any effect on clearing the alcohol out of somebody's system. So the best um, framework to use is once you've been drinking or you've taken your some drugs, let's say even prescription drugs that can affect your driving, is to just not plan on driving and not operating some vehicle. The problem is once you start, a person starts to drink, um, the first stage of being, let's say, intoxicated is, is, you know, you feel good. You don't, they often have, because they're, they're already becoming impaired on their judgment, they may feel like they can still drive. They'll feel like, 
you know, I can, I haven't had that much or I can still drive, but it, basically they still are impaired. So to get around that, you have to plan ahead of time prior to that because then your judgment is going to interfere with your decision making. Does that make sense? Totally, totally makes sense to me. And you're, you're right. Like I, I'm even guilty of that where I'm like, oh, you know what? I've only had one drink. I'm totally okay to drive. I think that's like, a lot of people have the, oh, surely not me mentality. And um, that's mm-hmm. kind of when it's the most dangerous because it's already pa- impairing your judgment, right? Right. And and it is true that one drink is not going to put you, most people, into that over the legal limit. But as far as saying when it exactly is safe to drive, is there's no black and white answer to that. Yeah, because if, you, if you'd if seen my mom after drinking one drink, you'd be like, definitely, <laughs> definitely one drink is enough. <laughs> um, now, you know, there are going to be people listening to this that have maybe driven impaired before, even maybe have taken a risk when they know that they shouldn't have been driving, but, you know, they just needed to get home for whatever reason, and nothing's happened to them. But if they're listening to this and they want to get help, they know it's an issue, they know it keeps happening, what should they do and where should they go? So if they're having um, a continued um, issue with this, like they know that they consistently drive under the influence, then um, there are places they can reach out to, like um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a helpline. It's 1-800-662-HELP. Um, there is also also the National Suicide Prevention Line for those who are having issues with, you know, mental issues or depression, 1-800-273-TALK. But basically, if they know they're having issues, um, they need to reach out and talk to someone. And if anyone has that's listening to this has a family member or a friend that they know is in danger of driving under the influence, they also can reach out to them directly and um, talk to this person, come up with alternatives. One of the issues is we like to say is um, talking to teens, too, also about driving, is um, teens often don't understand that other people on the road can be impaired. They're very confident in their own abilities, but they don't always consider who else is out there on the road, and especially in this time of year with people coming home from parties and so forth. So setting up um, guidelines and information for them about curfews, not to be out certain late at night, um, so forth, to be home at a certain time, text or call when they're leaving and when they arrive, things like that can help keep everyone safe also. Absolutely. I'm so glad you were talking about frameworks that you know, people can use to talk to loved ones about driving impaired, um, especially their children. Um, you know, I think that uh, another, I guess, related question I had is how to talk to someone that you see is about to drive uh, when they really shouldn't be, right? Their judgment is impaired. Um, you know, one of the things I try to do is because of the ride-sharing services that are available these days, whether it be Uber or Lyft, I always just say, hey, like, let's not take a chance. You know, there's these amazing services where a car will magically appear, 
will pick you up. Uh-huh, uh, they're yeah. not impaired, and they can get you home safely. It's it's no problem. And that you know that has seemed to work. But sometimes that's a difficult conversation to have with people. Like, are you uh, noticing that? And if so, um, is there a framework or a way that you recommend or advise people to speak to people that are about to hop in a vehicle? Yeah, that is a tough one for sure. That's a tough one because once the person is very adamant that they will drive and somebody has recognized they shouldn't drive, it is, uh, it can become just a battle right there. So if they've denied, if a person is refusing any help in a, like a ride share or a cab or even for someone else to give them a ride, then <clears throat> it's really a personal decision. You have to decide how you feel about it because we have to remember that it's not just the driver themselves that's in danger. It's the other people, innocent people on the road, you know, it could be a pedestrian, it could be a child riding their bicycle. Um, people can get hit by impaired drivers and not even be in a car. Or it can be another carload of people, um, innocent people in another car that they, they may run into or take out themselves. So we have to think of the whole, the whole picture. So in that case, if it comes down to it, you may have to call Law enforcement, if you're very concerned, um, I've had to do that before when I witnessed someone who was very dangerous behind the wheel. And we need, you know, to protect the community and our families and friends out there. Yeah, it's not about that person. It is about something much greater. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave with our audience before we sign off? I would just like to say um, that it's, this is a very important subject and that since it became law, I think it was 1981, where um, DUIs actually were, came into um, the legal system, driving under the influence was punishable, that they have decreased with all the awareness. The cases have decreased, but still even one, these preventable deaths, that you know, it's very important. So it, this is a extremely important uh, matter, and everyone wants their friends, family to come home and be safe on their travels. So just to remind everyone to always feel free to speak up, to help people if they don't have, um, if they don't know how to get a taxi or help them plan for the designated driver or a ride share, and working all together and through promoting it, I think that's the best way to get the numbers down. Hopefully we can get it. No more deaths from impaired driving. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end. Thank you so much for your time and for your guidance. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Melissa Parkinson, a registered nurse and trauma coordinator at Ridgecrest Regional Hospital. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Ridgecrest Regional Hospital podcast. To learn more, you can visit rrh.org. Melissa also mentioned a couple resources, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. You can call them at 800-662-HELP and also the National Suicide Prevention Line. And you can call at 800-273-TALK. If you found this podcast to be helpful, please share it on your social channels and be sure to check out the entire podcast library for topics of interest to you. My name is Prakash Chandran. Thanks again for listening. Be well.